Hello, I'm Linda Huey, and this is Meet the Doctors, the show that lets you hear what doctors have to say about their lives, their work, their passions, and what they foresee for the future. Today's guest is orthopedic surgeon Dr. Franz Larabor. This episode of Meet the Doctors is brought to you by Complete PT Pool and Land Physical Therapy. Whether you're trying to prevent knee surgery or recovering from shoulder, hip, or back pain, Complete PT offers you the most advanced pool therapy in combination with traditional land therapy. You don't need to know how to swim or even get your hair wet. The 92-degree saltwater pool soothes joints and muscles and helps reduce pain immediately. Visit CompletePT.com. That's CompletePT.com. Doctors are busy people, and we have to grab them when we can for these interviews. This time we were in a swaying high-rise on a super windy day. You'll hear some banging noises in the background, but we think hearing what Dr. Larabor has to say is worth the slight distraction. We're here with orthopedic surgeon Franz Larabors, who's affiliated with Cedar sinai Welcome to Meet the Doctors. Thank you, Linda. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so nice to see you again. Yeah, I know. It's been great. <laughs> I met you when you were fairly new to Cedars. Right. And um, we're going to have time to catch up on where you are and what you've been doing since then. But I want to go to the beginning. Where were you born and raised? So I'm originally from Long Island, New York. I was uh, uh, born in Manhattan. Uh, born in I, Manhattan. I was born in Manhattan. I didn't get Lenox that Hill. detail yeah, last I was, time. <laughs> I was born at Lenox Hill Hospital in Manhattan. I lived in the Bronx for about five years. Uh, my father's a physician as well. Uh, he was. Uh, I was born during his residency training uh, while he was uh, doing his residency at Harlem Hospital. Oh. And um, I, I uh, moved to Long Island <clears throat> um, uh, at about five years old. We lived in this town called Westbury. Uh, and then I moved to where my parents are today in a town called Melville, uh, which is in Suffolk County, uh, Long Island. But your parents didn't live there all their lives. No, that's true. My parents are, are actually uh, emigrated from Haiti in the late 70s. Uh, my father came after he completed his medical school uh, and moved to Miami, Florida for some time and then eventually came up to New York. Well, the Miami weather was more like Haiti's weather. How could he tolerate New York and why did he put you through that? Right, exactly. <laughs> and that's why that kind of was an impetus for me to come out here. Yeah. Because yeah. I think ultimately we don't like the cold weather. <laughs> yeah, I know you played football and you're a pretty darn good linebacker in high school. Yes, I, I played for a pretty big uh, athletic program in uh, New York. It's uh, called St. Anthony's High School. Uh, they are the number one uh, athletic program in New York. And we had a pretty good team uh, at the time. And I was, uh, I was uh, at the time, selected for all league. Mm -hmm. uh, but given my height, I wasn't exactly a, a, a large college prospect. So I ended up not playing in college, and, and which was ultimately good for me because I think it ultimately allowed me to more focus on my studies and and. and and get and where you are today. Other, yeah, yeah. And pursue other things. Yeah. Now, even before your senior year, you went to Columbia to do a studying one summer. Yeah. So um, the summer between my junior and senior year of high school, I actually participated in a, a, a genetics and molecular biology course. Genetics and molecular biology. <laughs> How did you choose that? Um, so my sister actually w was at Columbia at the time. Ah. So I knew I wanted to go to school in, in the New York City. I really loved the culture, um, the diversity, and, and it was close enough to home where I can go home wherever I wanted, but it was far enough where I, I felt I was living on a campus and going away to college. So it was the best of both worlds. So yeah. that summer gave me an opportunity, number one, to kind of experience what it, what it was like to live in New York City, 
uh, as well as uh, take college level courses in, in the sciences, which was always kind of something that I enjoyed. So are you saying that you lived on campus that summer? Yes, I lived uh -huh. in, I, I believe it was Hamilton Hall at uh, Columbia University. What was that like? That first time away from home, really? It, it was. Uh, it was. It was a tough transition in the beginning. I think you know, being sixteen and, and spending a summer in New York City and and being away from home. I would go home the first few weekends, and then after I you know made made a nice close group of friends, I ended up actually my parents had to pretty much drag me out of the city <laughs> at that point. It's probably the story of every parent who sends a child off to school. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so, did you already know then that you wanted to be a doctor? It was in the back of my head, um, you know, just because my, my father was a doctor, I had experienced um, some of his interactions with his patients, which really uh, was, I think, crucial in me wanting to pursue that. And when I was younger, I would always do some of my dad's bookkeeping and, mm -hmm. and help him file charts back in the day when it was all paper charts. Right. Right. And his patients would come up to me and he would introduce me as his son. Patients would come up to me and they would just say all these great things about my dad and how amazing... You know, he did their surgeries, specifically cataracts. So he's an ophthalmologist. Right. So the one thing about cataract surgery, it's a very, uh, uh, it's a very uh, uh, fulfilling procedure in that you go one day, you're essentially can't see and you're essentially blind, and then you get your cataracts done, and it's like lifting the mm. lifting the shades up. And no the wonder they fell very, in love with him. <laughs> the patients are very grateful, so they would they would yeah. they would you know they say such great things about him, and to me that was always uh, seemed like such a rewarding uh, part of his job. So when I went to NYU for college, uh, I actually majored in economics, thinking that I was maybe consider a, a career in finance. So um, at first, the transition to living in downtown New York City was a little bit difficult just because NYU didn't have the traditional college campus. Mm -hmm. But I, I, I slowly acc acclimated myself and and uh, uh, I, I really kind of enriched myself in, in the diversity and the culture of, of living in downtown New York City with the restaurants and the museums and going to different plays. And mm -hmm. it was really uh, it was really a unique I felt like it was a unique uh, kind of college experience to be in in the in, in the downtown area of one of the busiest cities in the world. And so how did economics play into the rest of your career? You learned what did you learn there that you're using now? So I learned uh, the, one of the more interesting things about economics is really how um, everything within a system affects each other, whether it be supply and demand economics and, and looking at how one variable um, in one system can affect another. And I think that that plays true in, in, in medicine as well. Mm -hmm. um, um, I really like the kind of math and and objective aspect of economics, but there's also the subjective, subjective aspect of it in terms of uh, um, consumer feelings and 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 playing the emotional aspect of it and how that can affect the more objective mathematic part of of economics. And I thought that was always very interesting. And I can see how those same two things play out in, in, medicine. in medicine. There's yeah. the very specific scientific stuff, and then there's how people feel about it. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So. so okay, four years of your undergraduate work at NYU. Yes. And then how did you choose Howard for med school? So when I was looking at uh, different medical schools, uh, what really drew me to Howard was um, their their overall uh, mission statement uh, and how they they their goal was to serve the community and and that was something that was uh, really kind of poignant with me. Um, and when I went down and visited, I really liked the atmosphere. Everyone was very congenial. Mm -hmm. um, um, it was my first time going to, you know, being in a majority African-American environment. 
Um, and, and it was, it was a, it was a, it was a really good experience. And, and so Washington DC, which is mostly a, a, a black city and right. the city also. Exactly. Yeah. Uh-huh. You know, also known as chocolate city. Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> um, it was, uh, it was, it was an unbelievable experience. It was, it was, uh, uh, a lot, many of my classmates are still my best friends to this day. And, and, um, it's, uh, we all really enjoyed, um, the, the, the diversity of all the different backgrounds that we all came from. So the people going to Howard are from all over the world or mostly all over the U.S.? All over the world. Mm-hmm. Um, I had classmates from Ghana. I had classmates mm-hmm. from uh, Asia. I had uh, one of my closest friends was a Mormon from Arizona. <laughs> yeah. So we had a really a diverse class, and most people think that it's just black. But we, like I said, we had white, yeah. Asian, uh, Hispanic, uh, African-American, and, and everyone was just non-competitive. We all shared our, our notes, and we all looked at it as we were all getting through medical school, and, and it was a really kind of uh, community environment. And there's a very special program there that you told me about that I thought sounded really fabulous, the Nth Dimension. Yes. Talk about that, please. Yeah, so Nth Dimensions, which I'm still involved with to this day, is a program to help uh, increase um, um, female as well as minority medical student exposure. Because um, so, you don't see as many women in orthopedics. You don't see as many minorities in orthopedics. And correct. that's what Nth Dimension is trying to correct? Correct. Okay. Exactly. And a lot of it is, is, is due to just ex- overall exposure. Um, um, we are uh, oftentimes, uh, uh, they're pushed into OBGYN or primary care subspecialties um, to help serve the communities. But um, you know, in my, it was always my view that, you know, African-Americans get arthritis and, and break bones too, you know, so they need, uh, they need joint replacements, they need, joint they need all kinds of orthopedic exactly, surgeries. Exactly. Yeah. So, so, um, and dimensions has, has done a really good job of, of sending, um, uh, students all over the country and, uh, and providing them with, the, with mentors. And, and to this day, I'm, I still keep in contact with my mentor and, and we met at the Academy meeting, uh, last month. Um, Academy, I, uh, the AOS, which is the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons, which is the governing body of all orthopedic surgeons. So it was, uh, it was, it was, it's a really uh, influential program. To this day, every summer, I, I now accept my own students. Oh, um, so it's full it's, circle. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You gotta, you know, you gotta pay for it. You yeah, know, so. yeah. So what about orthopedics made you fall in love with it? So you would choose that as your specialty. So I still actually remember the first day I ever scrubbed into an orthopedic surgery procedure. It was the summer of uh, 2002. I was um, in between my first and second year of medical school, I'd, I'd, and then I was just thrown right into it. It was a knee replacement with Dr. William Long at Sentinel Hospital. Um, uh, he just five minutes before just showed me how to wash my hands and scrub in, and I just gowned and gloved. And immediately, I, I remember the rush of, of, of just adrenaline as I saw how the dance he had with his assistants and how he carried out the procedure. Uh, it was very methodical. It was very uh, just overall his preoperative planning and the execution into the actual procedure. I, I loved the the overall planning aspect of it and trying to achieve a goal. And then after that procedure, having immediate gratification and being able to see the X-ray of what we what he had just done. Uh, and and to so he ca- showed it to you beforehand too. And, he showed right. it to you with a, a broken what. Right. Well, it was a total knee replacement. Oh, so okay. he, he was planning out the cuts. Uh-huh. He was planning out the implant position. He executed that during the surgery. And then afterwards, you know, we're going over the x-ray that he had just executed. And to me, that um, was very objective. And I liked that aspect of medicine. Some of the other things in medicine I felt when I was going through rotations uh, were a little bit more subjective and following lab values and going through differential diagnoses and 
I love the cerebral aspect of that, but I also, but I like the ob objective aspect of orthopedics and the immediate gratification of being able to see with an x-ray what you just did yeah. and being able to yeah. actually prognosticate how this patient will do based off that x-ray. You're planning how they're going to recover and in other words. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. Well, so that was the magic, huh? Yeah, that Looking was the that, that, that sold me. Saying, yeah. <laughs> okay. That sold me. Then you went back to NYU for a five-year residency. You called it a military-style program. What did you learn from that? Yes. Um, so I learned a ton from that. So NYU was a, a, an unbelievable experience. All of the attendings and professors have high expectations for the residents. Um, and I, I think that um, made us all hypervigilant as well as... as as uh, uh, meticulous in how we practice medicine, um, it made us all um, it made us all very good surgeons. I feel. Give me know? an example of something that they said oh, that isn't quite good enough. You got to do something about <laughs> Where it. Where do I start? <laughs> <laughs> the one you it was, remember. It was, it, was, it was anything from you know even some of the things that we all think are just uh, uh, just not that big of a deal. So back back then before. The advent of the electronic medical record, we would have a lot of our sh how we kept it, things organized were on Excel files. Mm -hmm. right? Okay. And if one little thing was off on the Excel sheet, even though we knew what the right thing was, it was it was almost like office space, you know. And when office space, and when he didn't complete his TPS reports, and he kept hearing it over and over and over that day of how he messed that one thing up. What is office space? I'm, office I'm space lost was, here. A, was a movie okay. uh, back in the nineties. Okay. <laughs> basically, where uh, it was it was a place where if you made a mistake, you heard about it, and you may hear about it again, and it made you it made you hyper vigilant about making sure you cross your eyes and dot your t's. And, I guess and, you and learned how, huh? So yeah, so it was uh, it was it was a great experience, and it was a very uh, um, diverse experience in terms of the different subspecialties of, of orthopedics. Um, Such as? Um, so we had the opportunity of rotating at Bellevue Hospital, mm -hmm. um, and as well as Jamaica Hospital in Queens, which were the number one and number two level one trauma centers in New York oh, City. Wow, um, interesting and, stuff and, there, I'll yeah, bet. And Bellevue was a very interesting place. It, it, it had a, a very large uh, psychiatric uh, right. prison as well as a, a psychiatric unit. Um, we also took care of all the prisoners from Rikers Island. Um, That's uh, you don't do that every day. You don't do that every day. <laughs> I, I'll give you, for instance, a, okay. a very common theme in the ER was I broke my leg in such and such country, say the Dominican Republic. I went to the doctor. He told me to get on a plane and go to NYU oh, and go wow. to Bellevue. Wow! So it, Bellevue was almost an international hub for a lot of the Caribbean. Um, oh, how nice that they and, made it available that yeah, way. Yeah, and they had actually. Um, different programs um, to kind of help facilitate things all around the world. Uh, there was even a program for uh, 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 patients in, in Tibet who have been who have been tortured, oh. and there was a clinic specifically just for that at Bellevue. At Bellevue, boy, um, they had everything. It they, had, like. they had, they had, uh, you know, it's the, no, the it was the first public hospital in the country ever established. Ah, that so explains it a, a lot. That has a pretty big, rich history, and just walking through the halls, you can see it. Mm -hmm. So it was, uh, it was a, it was a. It was a good. It was a great experience. It was a great training experience. Yeah. Also, during your five-year residency, you went to Haiti. How did that come about? Yes, That's which is where your family's from. Right, right. So that was an unbelievable experience, and I, I, I give credit to my program director, uh, uh, Dr. Ken Eagle, at the time. And, um, he had been approached by um, a gentleman by the name of Ron Israelski, who was um, running an NGO that was reestablishing, help reestablish the orthopedic residency program and the and organization. NGO is a non-governmental organization. Exactly. Yeah. Um, 
to help reestablish the residency program in Haiti after it had been uh, after after the earthquake in 2012. So you mean they lost not just their hospital, but they lost all the educational right. structure. <clears throat> right, exactly. So um, because of the the chaos and the displacement of of so many things, a lot of the residents were essentially just calling doctors to see if they could spend time with them and and continue their training and um, off the island uh, uh, with the, off the island as well as on the island. Okay. Um, so uh, Ron Vrelsky, uh teamed up with with uh, NYU to help send teams down there five times a year to do educational lectures to uh, demonstrate different surgical techniques. Mm-hmm. Um, and the goal was never to just go down there and just do surgery. The goal was always to um, reestablish the educational department within within Haiti. And, and uh, I've gone back uh, three times since, and it's been it's been really rewarding and, uh, to go back and not only. Uh, give back to, to to the Haitian people and, and to where I'm originally from, but to to be able to see where my parents grew up and yeah. be able to yeah. to, to to see um, the culture that I always kind of heard about and saw the traditions, but the traditions were always you know in in in, in through kind of the word of mouth, but to see those things and to eat the food in real life, it was it was it was it was great. And you had some language that you brought with you. Yeah, so I, I grew up. My parents grew up. When I when I grew up, my parents spoke uh, Haitian Creole. Um, so it was uh, it was good to kind of refresh that and practice that. It's been dusty over the years, like most kids. I, I my parents speak to me in Creole, and I respond in English. <laughs> you know, so, so you so you can understand. I can understand. You prefer not to speak unless you have to. I'm not the greatest at articulating it, yeah. but but I can I can I can definitely get by. When you told me about the Haiti trips a couple of years ago, you said that your goal was to try to reestablish arthroscopy there. How's that going? Yes. It's, it's, that's one of the most challenging things um, because arthroscopy typically takes um, anywhere from three to six liters of saline um, to be able to perform the arthroscopy. That's the one living factor. They have the cameras, mm. they have the, t- the TVs, they have the equipment, they have the shavers, they just don't have the water. So what are they doing about it? Are they build, has, anybody, has anybody gone in, one of these big tech companies gone in there and created a desalinization plant for them? Like people put, went down to Puerto Rico and reestablished some communication there. Yes. Um, I know there's been multiple projects um, having to do with uh, um, uh, water quality as well as uh, clean water. But as of right now, uh, for the purpose of arthroscopy, it, it hasn't been prioritized. When there's so many people who just don't have clean water to drink. To drink, yeah. Imagine pumping six liters of that through somebody's knee. Yeah, that, so. that, that someone would object if they're thirsty. Right, exactly. So wow, that's, that's been what a limiting bar- factor. Yeah, that's the one barrier um, as of now. So. Do you, have you heard any plans of how they're going to... As of right now, no. We're, we're still looking at, at, at different ways to, to, to provide sterile water, but it's just right now there's, there's, there's such a safety issue with it that it, it, we, we really have to get it right before yeah. we can take yeah. the risk of... of, of of doing that. Yeah. Stay tuned for more from Dr. Franz Larabors after this. If you're in the market for a bike, you want to buy your bike from a shop that has great service. Bicycles need to be serviced and maintained on a regular basis for safety. You want a relationship you can count on with the shop where you buy your bike. Helen's cares as much about servicing your bike and keeping you safe as it does about the sale of a new bike. Their tune-up packages and excellent repair service will keep your bike in perfect working order. Go to HelenCycles.com. That's HelenCycles.com. And we're back with Dr. Larabors. 
After your residency, you did an orthopedic fellowship with Curl and Job here in LA. You said it was a great faculty, but that you learned as much from the fellows, the, your other fellows too. Yes. Well, tell us about that. Yes, yeah, so my, my, the Curl and Job experience was absolutely unbelievable. Um, yeah, Curl and Job, uh, as, as many people know, is what, one is the first established sports medicine uh, mm-hmm. fellowship. Um, so going there and, and getting getting the history of both Frank Job of how he was as a surgeon, as well as as working with some of the other amazing surgeons that are there, uh, was a, a it was a great experience, and it was a great finishing finishing program to really hone on your sports medicine skills, your physical examination skills, mm-hmm. as well as your arthroscopic skills. Um, more than anything, as well, was learning from the other fellows. Uh, they had a, a, an Arthrex uh, um, cadaver laboratory. Arthrex is a brand name of a, a company. company uh-huh. Yes, and and they provided us with uh, cadavers as well as instruments to to uh, uh, to hone our skills. And, and many times we'd spend hours in the lab working with each other and, and perfecting our technique and, and, and understanding the different angles associated with being able to visualize the different anatomic structures that we were trying to repair. How many um, fellows would they take at a time? Uh, back then it was 80 a year. Uh, I think things have changed. I think they've added, added more to the program. Now that they've joined with Santa Monica Orthopedic Group, that group has 11 now. Correct. But... Um, how many of you guys stuck around LA? I was the only one. Uh, really? Everybody <laughs> else went back one. home? <laughs> Everyone else went back home. The majority of us are from the East Coast, actually. Uh-huh, uh-huh. I think there was actually none of us were from the West Coast, um, but I was the I was the only one that's, that stuck around. Uh, the weather the weather sold me, and uh-huh. as well as uh, I, I loved uh, uh, I loved the patient population here. They 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 all are very uh, uh, hyper vigilant about getting back and, and wanting to get back to the sports they want to do, mm-hmm. um, which makes for great patients because they're, they're compliant and they, they work hard at doing the physical therapy. So then the next thing that happened to you is warm Saturday afternoon or Saturday morning, and you get a call from orthopedic surgeon, Dr. Robert Clapper. Yes. How did that go? Yeah. So when I was, so, so my journey to staying in Los Angeles was very difficult. Um, Los Angeles is, is a place where uh, there's a lot of orthopedic surgeons. There's a lot of people who want to live here. Yeah. <laughs> so when I, it was a challenge finding a, a, an open position, um, so I had uh, sent my resume over to Dr. Clapper at, at, uh, um, at the advice of uh, Dr. Clarence Shields as well as Rodney Gabriel. And um, I hadn't heard back for a couple of months. And then I got a call one Saturday morning uh, from Dr. Clapper. He said, Franz, <laughs> come down to my Manhattan Beach studio. <laughs> And I said, I'll be right there. <laughs> An hour later, I was uh, sitting uh, with him um, in his Manhattan Beach uh, uh, studio talking about uh, myself as well as uh, uh, the different opportunities that were uh, available to practice at Cedar sinai And then um, the next day, he gave me a call and said, I'm his guy. So uh, it, was, it, was, it, was an unbelievable, uh, uh, it was an unbelievable experience, and he's been a great mentor to me to this day. Well, I remember being in your office a couple of times, and you'd be working on things, and he'd come in, and you guys would look at x-rays together and MRIs. I thought, how cool. Yeah. Here you have someone with 25, 30 years of experience offering you suggestions on, well, maybe you could do this or watch out for that. Right, exactly. Yeah. That's, that's mentorship, especially early in your practice, is invaluable. Um, you could do the, the perfect surgery, but understanding who to do surgery on and when to do surgery is, is, is more than half the battle. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and getting that mentorship through him as well as uh, many of the other uh, uh, senior faculty has been uh, a really important part of my practice. Yeah, I know he's very conservative. He doesn't operate on someone until they've had at least a couple of months 
to try to see if they can recover without the surgery. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I'm the same way. You know, uh, majority of the time, things can get better with, with, with therapy, um, anti-inflammatories, uh, whether it be injections or even the tincture of time. Mm -hmm. um, it's all about uh, setting expectations for patients. And uh, sometimes uh, we can all be a little bit impatient. Um, and everybody, want, everybody is, including us. Exactly, we don't like us. to be the patient exactly, either. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, they do therapy once and they want to give up. But, you know, it's, a lot of times it's patient education and, and setting, setting their expectations and educating them that oftentimes with some conservative treatment and some time that you can get over this and you will be pain-free. And, and uh, I've seen that thousands of times in my practice. So um, that's, I think, it's more important knowing when not to do surgery mm -hmm. than when to do surgery. Yeah. There seems to be a consensus about that when I speak with the various doctors. Yeah. It's, it's the art right. of knowing who not to do surgery on. Exactly. Now, I saw online that you're doing robotic total knee replacements. When did you start doing yes, that? Yes, I started doing that this year. Mm -hmm. um, I started doing the uh, uh, robotic total knee because I started looking into it. I started looking at the research as well as uh, uh, speaking to uh, my partner, Dr. Snibby, who does quite a few of them uh, now. And uh, um, I've worked with the robot and realized the actual accuracy that it provides. You could change the angle of your cut up into a single degree. Um, the human eye can't do that. And, and knowing that the, the, the computer can calibrate and make those uh, uh, and, and can execute those actual cuts um, when fashioning a knee replacement, it's the future. I've been to conferences and doctors joke about sometimes that how we feel as if we're slowing the robot down. <laughs> <laughs> it's, 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 it's some revolutionary technology. And I think that in the next 10 years, I think we're going to all stop doing manual knee replacements in the is, future. Is that the surgery that most likely would happen to uh, go over, switch over to robotics? I, I think absolutely. Just looking at the, the amount of data that you get from the robot, as well as the amount of, uh, the amount of accuracy that it delivers, um, it really kind of makes you think that we've been, we may not have been doing it right this entire time. Hmm. And that we may have been, a lot of it is feel, is guessing, and that's still involved, even with the robot. But being able to change the, uh, change things within millimeters, as well as change things within a, a degree to two degrees. An angle. It's, mm -hmm. it's, that's, that's something that as, as humans, it's not reproducible. Mm -hmm. Now, you're still early in your career, and yet you've already performed the latest sort of breaking new surgeries in the shoulder, the hip, and the knee. Um, do you think that comes with being a relatively new surgeon? Is that why you decided to try all those new ones? Yeah, I think, absolutely. I think, I think it does. I think we're all, I think in, even, even the older surgeons, I think we're all looking for, to deliver uh, the best care for our patients and, and trying to figure out the ways we can do it with the most minimally invasive techniques, the least amount of soft tissue damage, best modes of fixation so that we can allow early range of motion. I think that's all of our goal. And, and um, But I think as a, as a younger surgeon, you're more uh, willing to maybe step out, speak outside the box and try, try new things. But I think, uh, I think it's just also a, a generalization. I think it goes both ways. Yeah. But um, I, I definitely like to keep my finger on the pulse and, and figure out uh, ways to just improve care and, and, and get my patients moving faster. Good. Well, let's talk about each of these very specifically. You do the di direct superior approach for a total hip replacement. And approach means the way you enter the body. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. So only a few surgeons doing this. What's the benefit of this surgery? So the benefit of this surgery is, is, is mul uh, there's multiple things. So you get an anatomic capsular closure uh, with the direct Tell superior approach. Tell me what that approach. means. So, so typically when you do um, um, the uh, other approaches, 
some of the capsule actually gets excised. Meaning cut out. Cut out, mm -hmm. okay. And you can't, the capsule is essentially a bag that surrounds the hip and provides stability yep. uh, and ligament attachments to keep the hip in place. Um, with other approaches, uh, you actually excise the capsule and remove it, which results in your inability to close it. And that's usually not a problem um, unless the patient does develop some instability. So you're saying when, when you excise part of it, you're taking a piece of it out and that's why you can't close it. Exactly. You aren't taking the whole thing out. Exactly. Okay. Uh, and as a result of that, exactly. So as a result of that, you can't close it and it may lead in certain patients to some, some instability. With the direct superior approach, um, you can cl completely close the capsule. It's a muscle sparing approach, meaning that you split the muscles, you actually don't cut them. Um, and as a result of that, it imparts a lot of stability in the hip. Uh, after certain other approaches, uh, you have uh, limitations on your range of motion uh, to prevent dislocations in the early post-operative period. Mm -hmm. With the direct superior approach, there's no restrictions. Okay? The patients can f flex their hip past 90 degrees. Uh, they don't have to worry about any rotational um, um, restrictions um, uh, because they don't dislocate. Uh, I've never had a patient dislocate. Um, what about the <clears throat> iliotibial band, that wide canvas-like structure that goes down the side of the right, thigh? Right, right. So that's, that's, we found that the IT band plays a huge role in post-operative pain following hip replacement. And the patients that have surgeries that don't violate the IT band typically recover much quicker and have less pain in the post-operative period. Um, so that's why patients with the anterior approach do so well, as well as that's why the patients with the direct superior approach uh, do well. So the, the traditional one that most surgeons use of the posterior, you're saying slices open the IT band and right. has to suture it back up? Right. So you do you cut the IT band in line with its fibers. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's a, essentially a split with the posterior approach, and then you repair it. But I, I, I truly think until that repair heals, which takes about four to six weeks, mm -hmm. the patients have a lot of pain on the side of their hip. Um, and it does, it does slow down the recovery. But if you look at the literature, in all fairness, at, at three to six months, all things are equal at that point. Uh, yeah. So, so I, I think we all, as orthopedic surgeons, we love our approach. And I love mine, <laughs> you know, but, you know, for, for the general public, all at, at three to six months, all, all, the, all the approaches end up doing the same. It's just good for them to know what yeah. their options are. Exactly. It's, yeah. it's good to know what your options yeah. are. Um, and the, I like the incision is, is no more than uh, six to nine centimeters. And it's on the, it's, a, it's high on the buttock. It's yeah, it's high on the buttock. So you really can't see it even on your bikini line. So um, for some of my younger patients, they, they, they really like that. You might have just sold that to a couple of listeners. <laughs> <laughs> now, I was in your office the day you came back after doing your first primary repair of an ACL. Yes. And I had, I've been in touch with Dr. Gregory DeFelice mm -hmm. in New York, the mm -hmm. Hospital for Special Surgery, and a couple other places that he works, who pioneered this. And I think he kind of helped talk you through it. Would you explain what that is? Because I think it's so cool. And if it's still working, if this, have, yes. is it working yes, for you? Yes, absolutely. I've, okay. done, I've done numerous uh, ACL repairs. And the patients do fantastic. So it's a repair, not a reconstruction. It, correct. Yeah. So, so typically when you tear your ACL, um, in the past we've always been doing reconstructions in which we take tissue from either you or a cadaver and use that to replace your ACL. Mm -hmm. um, we found that, however, that uh, it's funny in, in medicine, sometimes the things come full circle. So back in the 80s, they've experimented with ACL repairs in the mm -hmm. past, and the majority of them failed. And the reason that they failed is that they were repairing the ACL, ACL tears that were cut either in the middle of the ligament or removed from the tibial side. 
Okay. Yeah. okay. And we found that those invariably fail and that has to do with the blood supply. There's one type of ACL tear in which the ligament tears from the femoral side, the thigh bone side, yes. and is still attached on the tibia. We can actually place sutures within the remnant ACL and, and dock those sutures into the femur. Into the and bone. It, and it heals. And we use an, something called an internal brace, which is a, a thick fiber wire suture to protect that as it, as it heals and so that it does, you don't get any elongation. That sounds, it sounds like a very tricky surgery. It, it's actually, technically, it's not that difficult. Is um, it almost easier than the traditional one because you don't have to harvest tissue from the patient's right, own body? exactly. So mm -hmm. the, the tissue's there for you. And, and, and most arthroscopic surgeons can place uh, sutures within uh, uh, the ACL. The benefit of it is that, number one, because you keep your, uh, your normal ACL, a lot of the proprioceptive fibers, your own nerve fibers that understand position sense, mm -hmm. are kept intact. So as a result of that, the patients have quicker recovery. They have less quadriceps weakness. Right. Um, patients are are typically running by uh, anywhere from eight eight to eight to ten weeks, and they can as return as opposed to what as opposed three to as opposed to three to four months mm -hmm. after an ACL reconstruction. And I'm allowing them to return to sports by around four months, as as opposed to around nine months for an ACL reconstruction. That's a big, huge difference. It's a huge difference. Yeah. So, and they have less pain in the post-op period. Do you think we'll see this crossover into professional sports? Or are they still being the old boys network? They've already, they've already, it's already crossed over. It has. It has. Ooh. So, uh, I know. What that, was the first team was um, doing it? Football. Uh, in football, I'm not. I'm not sure in football. I know in professional baseball. Okay. Um, um, uh, there's a doctor by the name of Weemi Dewegi, who's a, a former Curl and Job fellow and a friend. Wait, how of mine. do you say his name? His uh, name is Weemi Dewegi. Dewegi. Yeah, he's um, he's the current uh, team doctor for the Washington Nationals in Washington D.C. Okay. Um, he's done he's done hundreds of ACL repairs and he's done numerous ones on uh, professional athletes, uh, both basketball as well as baseball. So um, it's 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 the the, the, the literature is, has has shown great results and uh, and uh, low incidence of uh, retear. So I think it's a great option in the right candidate. Well, it sound, that sounds like a, it's moving in the right direction toward becoming commonplace. Right. Yeah. So do you see any new technologies or techniques on the horizon other than all these new ones you've already adopted? I think one of the um, technologies on the horizon would be orthobiologics, using your own biology to incite a healing response. Um, we're not exactly there yet, and I would caution many people listening to not jump on things right now. But I think that uh, uh, as technology advances, we're going to figure out how to inject stem cells on tissue scaffoldings and extracellular matrices. I think that's going to be the advent of it. I think a lot of our, our knife is going to turn into a needle. <laughs> uh, you know, but we're not there yet. No. Um, but it, I think it's. I think we're clearly on the way. I think that's going to be the wave of the future. Yeah. I want to thank you so much for taking time to sit with us and talk about everything you're doing and have been doing at Meet the Doctors. Linda, I want to thank you for having me, and it's always a pleasure meeting yeah, with you. Yeah, same here. You've been listening to orthopedic surgeon Franz Larabors, who is affiliated with Cedars-Sinai. If you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did, please subscribe so you'll never miss an episode as we speak with the brightest minds in medicine, research, surgery, and much, much more. I'm Linda Huey. You can tweet to me on Twitter at Linda Huey. That's L-Y-N-D-A-H-U-E-Y. Say hi or tell me who you'd like to hear on Meet the Doctors. Thanks to production assistant James Cowan and to Tom Struther for audio post-production. <laughs>